Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. I'll read from verse 11 and read through to chapter 20, verse 15. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient snake who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones at which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their heads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. 
they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. Thanks, Johnny. Evening, everyone. Um, do keep your Bibles open uh, if you've got them or uh, keep them handy. Um, my name is Scott Fury. I'm the student minister. Um, should we pray as we um, come to God's Word together? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these pictures are strange pictures to us, and yet we trust that they are written for our good, that we might endure, that we might keep going, trusting in Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts. Uh, to hear what you would say to us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, um, I, I know it will shock uh, many of you greatly, but I'm not really that into boxing as a sport, um, despite my surname. Uh, not really into boxing. Um, but if you are into boxing, if you know anything about it, you'll know that the big fight that the, the whole boxing world is looking forward to is Tyson Fury, no relation, promise. Um, I do get asked it a lot, so it just clears it up to tell everyone not related. Um, Tyson Fury um, and Anthony Joshua, um, the two uh, British heavyweights, uh, both, uh, both with different belts uh, under their belt, or however you say that, um, both possess different, uh, different of the boxing belts. Um, by all accounts, if you know what you're talking about, it will be a close run thing when, um, when they give them enough money uh, to come and uh, punch each other's guts out. Um, they're quite different, uh, quite different fighters. On the one hand, um, on this hand, uh, on the one hand, you've got Anthony Joshua, a sort of well-disciplined, well-drilled um, athlete. And then on the other, you've got Tyson Fury, the sort of raw talent uh, with a spark of genius able to pull off uh, the impossible. And when eventually they do come together, even if you're in one of those, in one of their corners, in one of their camps, you'll not know for certain who's going to win until probably after 12 brutal rounds, uh, one of them hits the floor. Can't be certain who is going to win. Passage we just read this evening, and we're thinking about, when Jesus returns to defeat his enemies, it is no contest. This is not uh, 12 rounds uh, of evenly matched opponents. Now, this is swift, complete, victory over his enemies. We've been going through Revelation, haven't we? And, we? and we get these pictures time and time again of Jesus' return in glory to sweep away his enemies and bring his justice to save his people. We saw um, last week um, Babylon, the picture of, of spiritual adultery, um, utterly defeated, thrown down. And then this week, 
um, in quick succession, each and every enemy of God's brought before him and destroyed. So how we're going to go through it. Um, three points. Firstly, that no one can stand against the judge. Secondly, that no one who trusts in him will be lost. And thirdly, no one will escape his justice. Firstly, then, no one can stand against this judge. Reading from um, chapter 19, verse 11. Just before we do that, just picture in your mind for a minute Jesus. How do you picture Jesus? Is it like this? Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is a picture of Jesus returning in glory. And it is terrifying as the rider with the blazing eyes of fire. But as he comes, we can trust him. He is called faithful and true. He is the one who judges justly. This is not random destruction. This is just judgment. He comes as the one who has his robe dipped in blood, his blood, with which he paid for the sins of his people. This is Jesus by many different names. The, the, one, the name who no one knows, but he himself, he is more than we can ever comprehend. He is the word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. All power, all authority are his. He will rule over the rebellious nations and his job as he comes is to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That is, he is the one who brings God's judgment. It is a glorious picture of the return of Jesus. Jesus is is the one who calls us to come to him, who is extraordinarily gentle and patient with sinners. And yet he's also this mighty rider who rides out to conquer sin and crush his enemies under his feet. This is the Lord we worship, if you're a Christian, this evening. And if you never picture Jesus like this, well, you miss out. If, if Jesus is always too tame, well, you miss the awe, the glory of the, of the returning Jesus. The, the awe, not just at what Jesus has done for you in the past, but what Jesus will do for you when he returns. When he returns, um, there'll be no sort of um, gentle handshake or awkward elbow bump 
when, when Jesus returns, we will fall on our faces before him. He is that glorious. That is the right response because when he comes, it will signal God's judgment. Verse 17 and 18, um, it is as if Jesus' return strikes the, the gong for the beginning of the feast, not the, not the wedding feast of the lamb, that, that's to come, but the great supper of God. It is, it is a, a terrifying and awful picture of the destruction of God's enemies as the birds are called to, pre- to prepare to feast on their bodies. Bodies of, of, of great kings, of mighty rulers, and of the very lowest. No one can stand when he comes. Verse 19, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. If you remember back to Revelation 5, uh, 13, we saw that um, <clears throat> excuse me, the beast and the false prophets, they were symbols of the powers and authorities that oppose God. The wicked rulers that persecute God's people and the wicked ideologies that, that back them up. They are terrifying enemies. You would quake before them. It's a little bit, um, the, the picture here again and again of God's enemies, a little bit like, um, if you remember back to Lord of the Rings, um, I know the films are like 20 years old. Some of you weren't even born. But I was a teenager when they came out. They were quite seminal. Okay, so we're going to have a Lord of the Rings illustration, whether you like it or not. It's coming back to Netflix or Amazon or something. So um, you'll, you'll find it. Um, uh, film, third film, third and final film. And there is this scene uh, as, uh, as the remaining goodies, the, the, the army of Gondor, um, go out against the, um, the might of the great forces of Sauron. Uh, they're trying to buy time for Frodo to get to the, the mountain to chuck the ring in. Um, uh, and they, they get, that, basically that's them in the middle, okay? This tiny little group um, on enemy territory, surrounded by this uh, vicious army with the eye of Sauron looking on directly at them. It is terrifying. They are without hope. Until, of course, um, spoiler alert, uh, Frodo and Gollum sort of combined, get the ring uh, into Mount Doom. And as the ring is destroyed, the forces of evil are just wiped out uh, without another uh, sword drawn. The, the, The picture we get here is a bit similar. It is um, of, of a, a besieged people, and yet God's enemies cannot stand when the Lord Jesus returns. The beast and the false prophet, they're thrown into the lake of, of burning sulfur, this a picture of, of eternal judgment. Those who followed them are, are killed with the sword. Every power that sets itself up in opposition to God is defeated fully and finally. Jesus will be victorious. And so as his people, we praise him for his great victory over evil, the victory that he will win. 
Jesus is the mighty judge that we need when our enemies are as fierce as this. It may be that the imagery here, that the language, the strength of it just makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But I guess for many of us, that's because we haven't directly faced the horror of true evil. Some of us will. When you, when you hear of or experience the almost incomprehensible wickedness of, of abuse against children or the, the, the cold-blooded um, abuse and murder of, of a friend or the day-in, day-out systematic racism that holds people back. When you, when you have known real evil, well, you need to know that Jesus comes to completely, utterly crush evil. He is the lamb who dies for you, but he is also the mighty rider who crushes all evil. No one can stand when he comes to judge. Secondly, then no one who trusts in him will be lost. No one who trusts in him will be lost. uh, Chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient snake, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from, the dece- from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, what's going on here? Um, we're, we're getting into some pretty wacky um, imagery and people have some pretty wacky ideas about what it all means. So we're going to have two minutes on it, okay? We're going to sort it out in two minutes um, and then we're going to move on. Um, what's going on with this thousand years? We need to remember that, um, that Revelation is not strictly chronological. It's not one thing happens and then, and then the next thing happens. We've, we've cycled back round and this is not what happens next. This is, this is a different angle on that same final judgment Okay, we, we've, we've gone back um, in history and we're going to sweep right through uh, until uh, we see again that final victory of, of Jesus. So the thousand years then, uh, different Christians have different, way, different ways of understanding it. Um, some uh, would say that it's the thousand years after Jesus returns um, when there's still like war and battle and everything's not quite sorted out yet. Um, others would say it's, it's a thousand-year sort of golden age of the church before Jesus uh, returns. But the, the problem with both of those views um, is that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the rest of the New Testament is very clear that there is one definitive return of Jesus and one definitive defeat of his enemies, not two. So I think when we read a thousand years here, we're, we're not to read it as a literal thousand years. And um, just like all the other numbers in Revelation, it is a symbol. It is a symbol for a, a long period of time, an enduring time. And it's not pointing uh, to a future event. And um, it is describing uh, the present. So we live uh, within the period of that thousand years. It's the period of time since, uh, since Jesus rose until he comes back. Now, you may have questions about that, um, which you can come and chat to me at the end. But I think that is the view that best fits 
um, the New Testament's understanding of what will happen when Jesus returns. Okay, if all of that was <clears throat> not of interest to you, um, come back. Here, here's, here's what it means. It means that two things are true now. Firstly, that Satan is bound in a pit. And secondly, that Christians who've died reign with Jesus. Okay, Christian, uh, Satan is bound in a pit and Christians who've died reign with Jesus. Um, is Satan bound in a pit now? That's a big question, isn't it? Um, New Testament uh, elsewhere, 1 Timothy 4, 2 John 7, tells us that, that Satan's agents do still um, deceive many. And 1 Peter 5, that, that Satan still attacks Christians. He is still at work in the world, but um, his power is limited. His evil is restrained. The gospel is still being proclaimed. People are still coming to know Christ and to know life in him. And so Satan is bound and will one day be defeated. That's, that's what we get in, in verse 7 to 10. We're now looking forward to that final defeat. Satan is unbound for a short period of time, and, but it is only a short period of time. He uses it to gather the nations, uh, Gog and Magog, another picture of God's enemies, um, to gather the nations against God. So again, we, we get this, this powerful army, huge number coming against God's people. But then just as before, their defeat is, is so quick. Verse nine, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. God's enemies completely defeated as Jesus is victorious. Why does all that matter? Well, it matters because it means there is hope for God's people. There is hope for us even as we face the worst that evil throws at us. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are safe from God's enemies. Why? Well, because even if God's enemies kill you, you will reign with Jesus. Verse four of chapter 20. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death <clears throat> has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Before we get into the details, it, it, the little footnote in verse four is important. Um, where, where it says they, or the little footnote, uh, I also saw those who, that is there are two groups of people um, that are being mentioned here. There are those who have been beheaded because they were Christians. And there are those who had not worshiped the beast. That is all uh, Christians. So this is promising that, that for Christians, um, they will be with Jesus after their death, even if they are killed for following Jesus. How can we say that? Well, we'll notice first that it, it's their souls that he sees. This is, not the, this is not the final resurrection. It's not a physical resurrection. That is to come. But they are with Jesus, reigning with him. 
We may not understand all the details of that, but why does that matter? It matters because if your life is threatened now for following Jesus, you need to know that death will not mean that you're lost. And go back to 2015 and, and, and the, um, the pictures going all around the world of, of, the, of ISIS and beheading 21 Egyptian Christians on a beach in Libya. That grabbed the headlines, didn't it? But Open Doors, an organization that works with persecuted Christians, um, estimates that 13 Christians every day are killed for following Jesus. So that's, I don't know, what, what is the 90 odd of us in the building this evening? That's that number. It's all of us every week uh, killed simply because we follow Jesus. Those brothers and sisters uh, are not lost. They are with Jesus. As is every Christian who dies before he comes back. And for most of us, I guess we won't face death for following Jesus. That's unlikely. But we do need to know that we're safe as we face the evil in this world. I guess our generation will probably have to be more ready for it than previous generations. And as we, as we come across, as we come up against uh, systems and forces that work against God that are opposed to him. So I guess it will be increasingly likely that, uh, the, that Christians will be dismissed from their work for um, holding to Christian uh, convictions and that we'll, we'll be accused of hate crimes for saying what the Bible says about sin and judgment. God's enemies might well begin to feel unstoppable, but they will be stopped and Jesus will be victorious. We are safe in him no matter what. But we are only safe in him. And we'll see that as, as we look thirdly and finally, that, that no one will escape his justice. Verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Powers that, that stood against God have been judged. Heaven and earth have fled away. There is nowhere to hide. That's firstly death, the great, the great consequence of sin. And then all sinners come before Jesus. And this is where it gets more personal, doesn't it? We might be quite happy to think um, that God will judge evil out there. But what about the evil in here? What about people like you and like me? 
as these books are opened up with everything that you have ever done and thought. Lay bare at before the perfect judge. What, 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 would, what would your book look like? I guess there would, be, there would be parts of it, there would be pages of it that you would be proud of. But for each and every one of us, there would be things that we would be horrified if anyone else saw. Never mind the perfect judge. Just like his other judgments, this judgment will be just. There are no miscarriages of justice in his court. The records, the full, complete records are there to prove it. No one will stand before God and argue with him. Death itself is defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And then all those whose names are not found written in the book of life. Now that is, that is a sobering verse. And we should not read that without a, a chill running down the backs of our neck. Often we can, we can make sin out to be a small thing, can't we? Or I can easily explain away why I simply couldn't resist that sexual temptation. I can easily explain away why, why I was perfectly justified in my anger when I didn't get my own way. But you see that in these, in these books, in the record of my life, those things would condemn me, absolutely. Jesus is the just judge, and one day he will ride out to conquer sin, every sin. Either you and I will be condemned by what is written in that book, or, or, here's the hope for sinners on that day, or Jesus will find your name written in the book of life. Look at verse 12, second half. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There, there is another book. Not the book of all that I have done and said and thought that would condemn me. But a book in which my name can be written if I trust in Jesus. And so as, as, we, as we come to a close, a word to you if you're, if you're not yet trusting in Jesus. These images, they are, they are terrifying, but they are written that we might heed the warning to trust in him before he comes. Trusting in him is the way you will find your name written in the book of life. It is the only way. And so do not, do not miss that warning. Do not miss his offer of mercy. If, you're, if you are a Christian, two things, I think. If you know that this is true, doesn't it remind you that speaking about Jesus really matters? It matters more than anything else. This is, this is life and death on an eternal scale. 
And so I think as we read this, we are to be encouraged to keep speaking of Jesus to our family, to our friends, to our colleagues. We keep speaking of him. And secondly, we, we praise him because he is glorious and he is merciful. Jesus is the one who, who, would, who has given his life, who has faced the full wrath of God's judgment for sinners in order that you and I might find our names written in the book of life in his blood it is the only way to be safe on that day. Praise God for his mercy to us in Jesus. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, these, um, these pictures, these words, they are almost more than we can comprehend more than we can um, bear emotionally and yet father we praise you that they are written that we might keep going that we might endure to the end trusting in christ knowing that whatever we face in this life he will return and bring perfect justice he will crush evil beneath his feet fully and finally Father, would that keep us going in this life? Would it help us to cling to him? And would we look forward to that day? And Father, in the meantime, please, we would be those who speak of him to those who need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.